scorer. And the stadium erupts. Downing running to build the fullback. Whips a great looking ball in. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Borough Mag podcast with me, Rob Fletcher, editor of Borough Mag. And I'm really pleased to be joined today by an author, um, writer and a Borough fan. And it's Phil Spencer. Hi, Phil. Hi, Rob. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. And we're going to chat today about a bit about Phil's time as a fan, but also about Phil's new book that we'll talk lots and lots about. Um, it's a massive, massively important period of time in Borough's history. And we'll talk a little bit about where the title comes from as well. Everyone around my house for a Parmo. Very interesting title for a football book, but I'm sure a lot of Borough fans will know why we've got that title. So I want to start, Phil, literally right from the start. Um, how did you get into supporting Borough? How did you get into football? What's your sort of journey as a Borough fan? Yeah, well, um, I think my my introduction to uh, Sporting Middle. Um, probably, probably quite similar to uh, to other people's. Um, we well, we moved to uh, to Tisbury when I was about four years old. Um, we'd kind of like moved around a little bit before that, and when we Middlesbrough, um, it was it's very much a, a one club area. So you kind of come in, and all of a sudden, everyone about Middlesbrough, and that that's the club that everyone's um, everyone's supporting. You got all the people on the street, and everyone's wearing Middlesbrough shirts, and everyone's got uh, shirts with Janino on the back. It's very I don't know. It's very easy to choose which team you're going to support, basically. So, um, yeah, coming into the area, supporting Middlesbrough with Brainer. Um, all your friends support Middlesbrough and um, you're kind of watching them on the TV. I, th- I think for me personally, it was um, I-, I didn't get to that many games when I was um, much younger. I think that kind of made my uh, my love for Middlesbrough a little bit stronger, if anything, because I really appreciated it when I did get to go, whether it was going to uh, kind of like cut price uh, reserve matches or, uh, or that sort of thing. Um, and then basically when I when I did get my season ticket, which is the period that it's about, um, it was that 2003-2004 season was the, the first one where I had my season. Um, it just kind of made the memories just that bit more vivid just because it was my first season as a season ticket holder and I've soaked everything up really. Yeah, it is massive, isn't it? That first season that you sort of get involved with the club and you, you start following, especially when you go to the game. I remember... I was similar, but like 10 years earlier with the Robson era and then getting season ticket only when uh, Ravenelli and Janino and stuff like that had sort of signed and, and made a name for us, I suppose. What's your first game that you ever went to? The first game that I ever went to, um, the first first team game I ever went to was, I've, I've been trying to pinpoint it for a little while actually when it was, but I think it was um, around 1998 and I think it was a cup game against Stoke City. Mm. At the Riverside, it was yeah one of these September evening fixtures, an awful game of like second string teams basically on the pitch. And I think we got knocked out as well. So it was kind of a proper introduction to Middlesbrough. And um, that was the first time that I ever went to, um, yeah, to a first team match. But yeah, quite regularly to, um, it was kind of at the time when they did a lot more reserve team matches at the Riverside. I don't know if there was a player who was coming back from injury or whatever it might have been. They, they were kind of the, uh, the star attraction on that particular night but um yeah i think that was the first one and it was it was a pretty grim experience but me off so i can't complain so yeah it's funny isn't it because there's a lot of criticism that gets leveled at the league cup and the fa cup especially in the early rounds but i remember being the same as you like 
we when we didn't have season tickets, that was the only real chance that you got to to go to a game because you knew the attendances were going to be lower and tickets were always a little bit cheaper as well, weren't they? But it, it meant that you could sort of start supporting your club, really, wasn't it? Who was the first sort of player that hooked you in a little bit and you kind of thought, do you know what, he's a great player or you liked the game that they played? And who was that, the first one that you sort of got attached to? I thought it was something a little bit different to what everyone else will have said, but it's got to be Janino. It was just, um, it, it was just, it was ridiculous. You kind of, um, you're living in an area like Teesside. You, you kind of like, in, ter- in terms of what the area is like, everyone's everyone's quite local to the club a lot. For the club at that time were were local and they weren't they weren't that glamorous because we're English players and sort of thing. And then you have Janino coming in from from South America. He's um, it's just the absolute stereotypical Brazilian footballer. He didn't come in. He was like um, he, he he just came in. He was just a of fresh air. It was um, it was it was just impossible not to fall in love with uh, with Janino once he came to Middlesbrough. Just because the way that he the way that he played, he played with a smile on his face. Every he got the ball he knew something exciting was going to happen and it just made it so easy to fall in and as a result they're falling in love with Middlesbrough as well yeah he's a funny one Janino isn't he because I'm sort of the 95 96 Janino onwards and I know obviously he came back a couple of other times but I only ever see him in that body of the 96 97 player even when he was playing later on in different kits with different players and his ability was you know his pace wasn't quite there and he played a slightly different role especially under McLaren but I still only have that vision. I'd love to speak to, actually, I did an article of the upcoming Borough Mag Volume 4 that will be out at some point this year. And um, I, I wrote an article about his month of March in that 96-97 season. He was basically just unbelievable in that month. But I'd love to hear about fans who saw him for each different period. So the fans who saw him first with like Ziga in 99-2000 and the fans that saw him when McLaren bought, brought him back and wonder what they think of him as a player based on, obviously, what their first experiences were, but but obviously with all of the stuff that had gone before. And I think he's such an interesting player that he came to play for the club three times as a star every time, but as a completely different player as well, wasn't he? Absolutely. I think what was interesting about Janino from my point of view was that um, I, I um, in terms of actually attending matches, I, I sort of missed his first kind of spell at the I watched them on TV and I had shirts with Janino on the back and I pretended to be Janino when I was stuff on the street playing football and that sort of thing. But I didn't get to see him the first time that he was there. And that I ever actually saw Janino live, I remember this quite vividly, was it was a friendly against Atletico and he was playing for Atletico Madrid at the time and he came back. And I just remember it was, um, I was only a kid. It was just heartbreaking seeing him in, in another shirt, in the shirt of Atletico Madrid. And it was quite a young Middlesbrough fan to kind of get your head around it because you're like, oh, he's going to play. He'll play some of the game in a Middlesbrough yeah, shirt yeah. because, I mean, associating with Middlesbrough, but um didn't happen. That was obviously a bit of a crushing experience. Get um, When he did come back to Middlesbrough that third time in, what, 2002? And Steve McLaren, it just made it that bit more special, I guess, for me and uh, for every other Borough fan because for people who had to see him the first time, it was kind of a chance to, uh, to watch a kind of a ready-made legend in action. Yeah, he really has such a mark on the club over that 10-year period, which I think is probably the most successful period in the club's history, really, that sort of 95, well, maybe more than 10 years, 94 to sort of 2006. So in terms of that period, we've talked a little bit about Janini in the 90s. Brian Robson, 
left a massive mark on the club. He transitioned the club from Ayrson Park to the Riverside. A modern club from the outside, but probably still quite an old-fashioned club on the inside a little bit. Steve McLaren arrives as Robson sort of leaving as this kind of visionary assistant. Every All the United players talk about his coaching sessions, about how different it was to, to Ferguson's sort of previous five years. What do you think that sat that that sort of appointment did for Borough when McLaren first joined? Obviously, it got more successful as it went on, but as a club, what do you think the impact of that what that choice was of McLaren as he arrived in two thousand one? Um, the the whole I guess remit of Steve McLaren's appointment was just really to model up from from the inside to the out. Really, um, he, he came into the club and. Um, Everyone had enjoyed the, the Brian Robson era and uh, what that was about and the entertaining football, glamorous big-name uh, big signings and that sort of thing. The whole era was effectively based Brian Robson using his own reputation and using Steve Gibson's money to go out and attract markets to the club. It was kind of like, that's almost like a mini Galacticos that we kind of had. It was the players who had been at old football coming to Middlesbrough in the, the kind of latter stages of the career from a business point of view and from a, I suppose, from a playing point of view, that wasn't really sustainable. And so when coming in, his remit was to um, to modernise things and kind of put more of a focus on coaching players and making them better. So I suppose that the typical thing that you see nowadays where it's a bit of a sort of money ball kind of situation, bringing in players who are the kind of, it's almost kind of like prioritising the, the mental ability of the player and the kind of profile of the player over what they could actually do on the pitch. It was kind of bringing in players who you knew play for Middlesbrough and that's what it was. It wasn't about getting a paycheck. It was coming in. They wanted to play for a club like Middlesbrough. They wanted to get better while they were there and having Steve McLaren and um, his uh, his backroom team, the people who were able to kind of do that. So um, it was it was very much about changing the... Um, yeah, changing the environment of the uh, of the club as, as they sort of had it. And Gareth South was... Um, he, he was Steve McLaren's first signing or one of his first signings. Everyone that you kind of speak to, everyone that I spoke to in the, in the making of the book was very much saying that he was the kind of architect of the club. He was the kind of person who came in and very much set the tone about what they were trying to do, the person who set the standards both on and off the pitch in terms of what the, the other players needed to be doing, the level to be reaching in training. Um, and so from that kind of point onwards, it was very much about um, kind of the... Um, the mercenaries, so to speak, the kind of like all the players, the people like Sitch, your, uh, your Christian Carambos, those kind of players who were just kind of there for a, a paycheck and a bit of the career and, um, and focusing on bringing in players who actually wanted to be there, wanted to get better and building that team from the other bottom up. It is, it is quite an interesting time for the club, isn't it? In the sense that it really is a big jumping off point in terms of the difference between Robson, the difference between McLaren. And it's obviously quite a natural place to start with the book as well. Um, and the book focuses on this period in the borough's history where McLaren does take over in that that summer. Now, it it wasn't a great start to uh, the McLaren. And I remember I was still a season ticket holder at this point. I'd sort of just left school and I was starting in college. I remember thinking he brought in what felt like a group of people who were going to change the club. So you had McLaren, Steve Harrison, Steve Round and Bill Besick. And I always remember reading, like reading the programmes and the sort of season previews and stuff and thinking about Bill Bezik and and what he would do. And as you say, it did focus a lot on the mental side of it and the the side of the sort of player that 
probably in the 90s was a little bit neglected, wasn't it? And I think Southgate as the leader was such a crucial signing, wasn't he, in that time? Especially partner up with Ehiog as well, to basically replicate what they had at Aston Villa. Southgate's signing was massive as well, wasn't it? But he did he did start to bring other players in as well, didn't he? How do you think that shift affected what he wanted to do? So he brought in um, like Jonathan Green and Mark Wilson came with him, didn't he, from Manchester United? It was quite a marked difference, wasn't it, in terms of, as you were saying, a, a transfer strategy that was on a different path than what Robson had been doing. Do you think some of that was dictated by Gibson? Or do you think that was sort of McLaren wanting to start afresh, if you like? I think in terms of the, the vision of the club, I think it was um, Steve Gibson's vision. But um, he's, as, as everyone sort of knows, Steve Gibson's not the kind of chairman to, uh, to micro kind of going on in, um, in the first team. So I think from speaking to Steve McLaren and just how keen he was, I mean, you saw it at Manchester United in terms of, yes, the class of 92, but you, about, um, yeah, you mentioned there about the, the likes of Jonathan Greening and Mark Wilson. They were players who came through the ranks of United. And what Middlesbrough wanted to do was that they kind of wanted to replicate that to an extent. It was about bringing the academy, but also kind of bringing young up-and-coming talent who maybe weren't getting a crack at clubs like Manchester, bringing them in and uh, giving them an opportunity to uh, to improve. So what was kind of happening at that particular time when McLaren came in, there was a load of um, a load of players, kind of like mid-20s upwards at the club who were quite happy getting a paycheck and like turning out for the reserves on they had no chance of getting near the first team but they were just there to, to get paid and, and kind of do that and so what the kind of task was was it was about clearing the decks really kind of clearing out that pathway to make sure that those young players were ready to play for the first team and when the uh, the academy players who you'd see once they were kind of up to speed there was a pathway there that was able to uh, to push them from the into the first team and you mentioned there about um, Gareth Southgate and Yuga Wechiog sure that when those young players got to first team level they had people there who were saying these are the standards that you need to reach it's not about watching Alan Boxich kind of not Friday and then turning up on a Saturday and putting in a good performance you need to be on your game Monday to Friday these levels dedicate it in terms of um in terms of like diet and fitness and all things there was no no Tuesday night beers nothing like that it was kind of very much focused on to be ready on a Saturday. And that was the kind of cultural sort of shift that came when McLaren uh, arrived at the club. It, it is it is crazy, isn't it, when you think about it? So, like, even 10 years earlier, or maybe just after when Robson arrived at Borough, he kind of arrived with a similar mantra, didn't he, of you've got to train hard, then you're going to play hard. But there was all the other stuff that went with it. There was, like you say, the beers on a Tuesday night because you weren't playing again till a Saturday. There was the, the sort of element of we'll run the dressing room for the manager. We'll make sure the dressing room's okay. McLaren sort of did that in a more modern way. And another person, I think, probably in this sort of generation of managers is Sam Allardyce, who did something similar to Bolton as well, didn't he? And Borough and Bolton were probably quite on a similar path at this time, although Allardyce was using much older players to get more out of them. And McLaren obviously used a lot of pro zone. They used a lot of statistics. Um that first season, though, I remember the the start of that season. It was an absolute disaster, wasn't it? Losing those first four games, and it looked it, he looked he looked shell shocked. I think didn't he when when he first stepped on the sideline? Think, oh no! Like literally, we just survived relegation. What is going to happen? But he he kind of recovered, didn't he, in that first season and sort of solidified us against really as probably a decent mid mid table team, didn't he? Yeah, absolutely. No, that's exactly what it was. It was. Um... You mentioned there about narrowly avoiding relegation. That, that's where the club was at. That was the level that they were at. And so I think when you are um, 
kind of undergoing such a, a cultural shift at a football club that there's got to be a bit of acceptance that it's going to take time. You're bringing in these young players that they're not going to be ready to uh, hit the ground running and push you towards the UEFA Cup places straight away. It does take time for those players to uh, to develop, but also for um, the, to give the, the manager time to bring in new players as well. So, yeah, it was a bit of a shaky start for him. But, um, yeah, I think in terms of, um, in terms of the overall picture of it, I think it was it was very clear that he was going to be the man to take the club forward. And, and Steve Gibson's always been uh, generous with his managers in terms of giving them time to uh, to improve and to uh, to kind of instill their methods. And um, thankfully, as we saw as the years progressed, uh, McLaren was certainly, I suppose, case in point of why you do need to give people time to uh, to improve and get a, get a grip of things themselves. Yeah, he probably would have been sacked, wouldn't he? In this modern age, remember uh, Frank De Boer at Crystal Palace? I think he only lasted. The first four games or something, didn't yeah, he? Probably four had games some... of the season, wasn't yeah. it? But uh, yeah, <laughs> then we either got away with it now, would he? No, I think he had probably had similar results. But I've just got the um, I've got my little Riverside X Bible out here. I'm looking at the um, the lineup that we had that season. We had Schwartz, Stockdale, Ehiog, Southgate, Quadro, Green, and Ince, Musto, Whelan, Nemeth, and Boxic. Now the spine of that team, I suppose, was was reasonably strong, but it was never really going to take us to that next level, wasn't it? I know we tried all sorts of different players, like Hamilton Rickard had played that season, Windass had played some games, we got Carbone, we had Alan Johnson, Colin Cooper, Marinelli. I always remember the Crossley-Schwartz, the sort of dilemma that he had, and I feel like that was one of his first big decisions, wasn't it, in terms of as a manager? Do I carry on with Crossley, who'd done really well? I remember fans at the time were fuming that Schwartz had come back, but he was definitely a manager that wasn't afraid to sort of shy away from those big calls, was he? Absolutely not. No, I think it was, um, yeah, he, he was always a manager who was um, comfortable making the kind of big decisions. And I think it was very much about, yeah, it's, it's about the short term and trying to get results. But as we just mentioned, it, it's very much about um, focusing on the long term. And his long term picture was about building a team for that was going to be successful in three, four years time. And Mark Crossley, as much as he was a good goalkeeper at the time, he was, it was very clear that he was at the back end of his career. Like what at that point he had like maybe a year, a couple of years left in his career. Mark Schwartz had significantly more. And so who are you going to choose? Are you going to choose the man, uh, the man who could stand between the sticks for the next four, five, six seasons or someone who's probably potentially going to retire at the end of that year. So that was always kind of in his mind. And um, I think with regards to, uh, to McLaren and the, the kind of decisions that he made, it was always with a view to the long term and making sure that the team were going to develop in that way. Because I think in his mind, there was just there was no use sticking with those older players who were potentially going to leave. And obviously, he's, he's trying to manage the, uh, the wage budget of the club and provide that pathway for the young players. And he, he probably knew at that point that as much as Crosley could have been a better option for him in, in goal at that point, he was probably going to be someone who was going to move on and Schwartz would step up to be the number one goalkeeper and that would then allow someone like a, a Brad Jones or someone like that to uh, to kind of push on and challenge for a first-team role. Yeah, it is a tricky balance, isn't it? Like you say, as a manager, when you're trying to shift the balance towards the long-term or try and build a team. And to be fair, you know, we actually built, well, we'll get to it obviously by the end, but we built, we built a very good team over that period of time and, the sort of next season was kind of a big one, wasn't it, really? Because that was the summer when he really needed to buy players who were going to be here for a long-term project that weren't like your Boxic, your Carbona, your Dean Windash, your Paulins. It was that time when we sort of needed to recycle what we had, start investing well. And in terms of that, we really did, we did invest quite a bit as well, didn't we, in that summer? 
we started to think about who we need and where we need them. So that summer, 2002, just after the World Cup, we bought Janino. We converted Quadro from a loan into a, a permanent deal. We signed George Boateng, who I think was an absolutely huge, huge signing for the team and for the club. And then Massimo Macaroni as well, spending pretty much, well, near enough £20 million that summer, if not a little bit more. What do you think the impact was of that summer, especially on that side and how the McLaren wanted to see them develop? I think um, I think that season was um, that that was the first one where you were kind of really starting to see what Steve McLaren wanted to do with the team. Um, you, you read out the uh, the eleven of um, what, what started the uh, the previous season when you were talking about your, your Paul Inses and those kind of players. You got to this season and after bringing in the likes of uh, George Boateng, you had you had a group of players who, barring one or two, who were still sticking around. They were a team that you knew could be there for the next four or five seasons, and that was what was key about it. Someone like George Boateng, he was he was someone who was proven at Premier League level. Um, he played for, for Coventry City and he played for Aston Villa. Um, he was someone who was coming in, he was he was ready-made and good to go, and someone who had like the best years ahead of him, really. You look elsewhere in the team who were who were playing at that point, and it was kind of the start of those young players starting to, uh, to emerge in that season as well. Uh, you, you've got your Robbie Stockdales in there, people like that. You were David Murphy, who was challenging for a place at, um, at left-back. Um, you, were, you were starting to see the likes of Stuart Downing coming through in the cup games, although he was still very, very young at that kind of point. And so, yeah, it was that sort of real identity of the team. And you also saw that um, with the likes of Massimo Macaroni, he was someone who, he, he was a massive signing. Obviously, he was, he was a club record signing at, um, at that point. It was, um, some people would say it was a little bit of a punt, but at that point, he was, he was probably one of the most attractive young players in European football. He'd just made his breakthrough for the, year for the Italian national team, and he was wanted by some massive clubs. Um, he, albeit he wasn't quite the finished article, and that was probably what what was the reason why one of the uh, the, the so called big clubs in, in Italy or the Premier League hadn't come in for him. But he was a player who really had the world at his feet at that point, and so signing him was um, it was a massive signal of ambition of where Steve McLaren wanted to go, um, and so that was uh, that was a, a massive signing. And also in that um, that season, you also had the signing of uh, of Jeremy on loan as well, who was another player that. You, you would see over those next couple of years that McLaren would, was like it was happy to use the loan market. There might not be players who he could sign on a on a permanent basis because of the the wages and the transfer fees that would come. But Jeremy came in and he was just an absolute breath of fresh air. Some of the goals that he scored were absolutely ridiculous. Um, even now you look back at them and you're like, how on earth was he playing for that Middlesbrough team because he was so good. Um, and yeah, like I said, it was just it was very much the start of Steve McLaren's team. And although that team wouldn't be necessarily the the 11 players who would take Middlesbrough into the the Carling Cup years and the European years it was very much that sort of um first step forward into um into becoming a team where people started to look up and take notice yeah I think Jeremy like you mentioned there that we got on a loan sign he he was absolutely brilliant he was like a different level of player that that we'd seen for a couple of years I think especially the back end of the Robson period when Although we'd had some real stars, the team was still a bit piecemeal in terms of, as you say, the mercenary style players with the the older British players. But he he was fantastic, Jeremy. I thought he's one of the best players that we've seen at the Riverside, I think, and probably doesn't get remembered that much. Partly maybe because he left after that one season, but I think it was Chelsea. Was it Chelsea he went to after that, I think? Yeah, I mean, when Chelsea come calling, you're not exactly going to 
turn them down considering that they were a top four side in the country at the time. I, and the macaroni thing always gets me because nobody knew how it was going to turn out twofold, as in he'd sort of get ostracised a little bit when we bought in more experienced goal scorers and end up becoming a European goal scoring hero towards the end. Well, he was such an exciting sign at the time because, as you say, we'd seen him boss the under-21s. He'd played against the England national team, I think it was at Ellen Road, wasn't it, I think, and come on for 10 minutes and called, caused absolute carnage in the England backline. You think, and then that debut against Fulham, there cannot have been a Borough or a set of Borough fans who thought, you know, maybe it's a bit of a punt this. Once he bagged those two goals, you thought, Do you know what, he's going he's gonna to be flying at this point. And he was, wasn't he? That early part of that season, he was absolutely flying, but I think we probably just never had the other players around him. One thing I think about um, McLaren is he really sorted out the home form in that season. I think we only lost two or three games or something like that, whatever it was. Away, maybe not so good. And we started to become a lot more solid. We added like um, Chris Riggett during the season, Christian Ricketts during the season. It was kind of, Gibson was in that classic mould, which I think he's kind of getting his mindset ready for at the moment of, I'm not going to let this slip away. This little gem of whatever we've got here, I'm not going to let it go. And I think he really, really hung on to that. The only thing I think for me with this team this season was it was an absolute tragedy that Janino got injured for me. That was just... This team was good for a mid-table team, but I just think that if he'd have stayed fit, I think we probably would have been able to challenge that a little bit higher, a little bit sooner, I think. Absolutely, yeah. It was... um... It was a real shame. It was in it was in one of the friendly matches, wasn't yeah. it? They were playing. Yeah. Um, was it Verona? They were playing at the yeah. time. Um, and yeah, it was just um, it was just heartbreaking. I mean, uh, we, we spoke there about the uh, the summer of two thousand and two, and the I suppose the the, the solid signings of, of George Boateng and Macaroni. He was exciting, but Janino, he was he was the headline attraction, wasn't he? He was the person that people came away from that summer and was like, right, we mean business now. We're 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 going for this. Um, and yeah, to see him get injured and not just an injury that would derail the first couple of months. I think it was March when he ended up coming back, wasn't it? March or April the following yeah. year. Yeah. Um, I think I was at the reserve team match where he actually came back. And I think there was about 20,000 people yeah, yeah. at this reserve match because uh, because everyone wanted to see Janino for the first time since he, uh, since he came back. But yeah, it was um, it was a real blow for him to... Um, to be out for that long, and uh, it was it was a massive boost to see him return. But um, I'm sure we'll get onto it in a little bit. But he just he wasn't quite the same player afterwards. You you often see it with these um, these cruciate um, ligament injuries. Not to mention the fact that he was um, what in his in his early thirties at that kind of point. It just it just kind of took away that yard of pace that he maybe had beforehand. And it was also the kind of time where you were seeing um, an influx of money into the Premier League, and so. Very quickly, you were seeing that the calibre of defenders were getting, it was getting much higher as well. And so all of that sort of conspired against them at that point. So, yeah, for him to miss out on that season, the one where he really could have come in and made a massive impact was uh, was a real shame to see. Yeah, it's, it's, I feel like it's such a sliding doors career that he had with Borough. The 96-97 season, or even 95-96, when it kind of started to dip a little bit. Then you had his loan spell that was good, but didn't quite work out. He had this one, then him not playing in Europe as well, which was just, for me, it's still a bit of a sore point, I suppose. I think he definitely could have done a job for us, but I, I do get why they did it in terms of wages and cost-cutting and moving the team in a different direction, all that sort of stuff. The following season, though, you know, was you know, was was huge for the club, wasn't it? And 
and taken taken us to a point where we where we won a trophy. For me, Zenden, Danny Mills, guys Kimendieta, three players who took us to completely the next level. Maybe not in the in the league, because I think we were a similar place, weren't we, in similar points or whatever it was. But they really did think, right, this Borough team, they're going to try and be a top eight side every season or a top six side every season. And those three really did change that club, didn't they? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, when, when those players came into middles, we, you knew that something special was happening. Da- Danny Mills was... Um, he was an England international the previous year. He'd been at the World Cup with England and he was, um, he, he, I think Middlesbrough over the years, they, they'd been the club who would sign an England international, but someone who was an England international maybe four or five years ago sort yeah. of things. About, oh, he's an England international, but he's not yeah. quite because he's not really yeah. still playing for them. Danny Mills was still, he was probably second choice in the England setup at that point behind Gary Neville. Um, obviously Gary Neville I think was injured for that 2002 World Cup so Danny Mills ended up starting every single game in that World Cup so he was coming in he was really at the top of his game it was a bit of a well very fortunate for us but not so fortunate for Leeds because it was only their financial situation which was the reason why he was allowed to move on um, so he was a massive signing um, yeah you're talking about um, Zenden basically Middlesbrough were in a position that summer where they could take a punt on these players who the only reason that they were available was, was because of the changing circumstances at their own club. Zenden, the previous year, he'd been a first-team regular at Chelsea under, um, under Claudio Ranieri. And that summer, that was when Roman Abramovich came in. He came in and bought about 30 players for about a billion pounds or something stupid. And um, Zenden was one of those players who, um, yeah, it got to the end of the, uh, the summer transfer window. And it's like, you know what? I'm not really going to be playing a lot here. I need to move on to be able to, to play. And, Middlesbrough were there ready and waiting with open arms to her to bring him in. And Mendieta, who was probably the most exciting of all of them, was just, it was just ridiculous, really. I think we'd seen, we'd seen marquee signings coming in before. We'd seen it in the, uh, in the 90s under Brian Robson and that sort of thing. But Mendieta was someone who, a couple of years previous, he'd been like the most expensive player in like, um, in world football or something, hadn't he? It was, um, that move from, um, yeah, the move, it was the move to uh, from Valencia to Lazio, I think it was. It cost about twenty nine million, which at that point was ridiculous money. And he came in, and again, the only reason that he came to Middlesbrough was because he'd had a bit of a torrid time the previous year. So to see someone like Mendieta playing at the Riverside Stadium, he wasn't past it. He wasn't a player who was like 36, 37 years of age. He was someone who could come in. He was ready made and could come in and do it. So when he arrived as well, along with Danny Mills and Zenden, you were starting to think, do you know what? We've we've got the quality here where we could. We could maybe we could beat anyone on our day with these players, and, and that's what kind of happened over that next couple of years. We weren't perfect. We obviously weren't challenging for for the title, but we knew that on any individual day we could beat any team that we came up against, and that's that was the kind of um, that was the kind of foundation that we built on in terms of the uh, the Carling Cup run because we might not beat people over thirty eight games. You're not going to beat. A Chelsea or a Man United over 38 games when they've got Cristiano Ronaldo who can come off the bench or whatever it might be. But on one game over 90 minutes, we knew that we could take on anybody. And that was the kind of confidence shift that came into play during that uh, that Carlin Cup campaign that season. Yeah, and you can you can see the team building, can't you? We talked talk from the team a couple of seasons ago. Now this is what the team looked like that, that season. Schwartz and Mills, Cooper slash Ehiog, Southgate, Kudrow, Zenden, Dereva, Boateng, Mendy, a Janinho and Job. 
you can see they've built from the back up the Schwarter over Crosley decision. Then you've got your back four sorted out. He obviously had some injury issues. Then you've got your midfield, two solid midfielders, with lots of creativity out wide. The next step was to sort out the strike force. And that was kind of something that he did the following year. But we kind of re- rotated quite a bit, didn't we, that season? You could see that Macaroni probably wasn't the player we thought he wanted to be. But one player I do want to mention, who I always liked and was really skillful, and I, I do think probably had a little bit of an unfortunate time at Borough, was Zillard Nemeth. Because he was, he was very, very reliable as a player, he was neat and tidy. He got involved in build-up play. He, do you know, actually, funny enough, thinking about Nemeth now, he's probably the number 10 that Chris Wilder needs as a forward in the current setup, doesn't he? Someone who's quite creative, but will get in the box, can score a tap-in. I always remember him scoring those little dinked finishes that he used to love as well. He scored a few of them in his time, didn't he? But Nemeth, Nemeth was a great player, wasn't he? What are your memory, memories of him and, and fitting into this team? Nemeth was... Um... He it was it was the perfect player for what Middlesbrough needed at that moment in time. At that at that particular time, obviously we, we'd spent um, a fair amount of wages on on the likes of Mendieta and Zenden and those kind of players, as, as we mentioned. Um, we'd, we'd have to wait another year to bring in a proper top quality striker that would only come uh, because we'd be playing in Europe. So what what Steve McLaren needed was someone who who could bag a goal. They wouldn't be absolutely prolific. They were never going to be someone who would score. 30 Premier League goals in a season, but they could put the ball in the back of the net. But more importantly than that, they'd work bloody hard for the team and they'd make sure that the opposition defence had no time to breathe whatsoever. Um, it was really quite refreshing, really, actually watching some of the um, the highlights when I was um, when I was doing some like research and stuff for this book because he, he just gave defenders no time whatsoever. He just he just didn't stop, and that, that's the sort of thing that I maybe didn't appreciate at the time. You just kind of think, oh, he's, he's not scoring as many goals as the Premier League's top players. It's like, oh, he, he can't be that good kind of thing. But the stuff that he offered to the team when he was playing there, he was, he was just perfect for Steve McLaren. He, McLaren wanted players who, if they weren't going to be scoring bucket loads of goals in the season, he wanted to be able to rely on them. He wanted to make sure that he was getting a, a seven out of 10 performance from them every week. And I think that's why Nemeth, over those years, and even the following year when they were playing in Europe, he was someone who Steve McLaren could rely on. That's what he had over the other players. Um, he had people like Macaroni, who probably was a better finisher all round than uh, than Nemeth. He was he had a, a more natural eye for goal, let's say. But he blew hot and cold. He, Macaroni was a player who would go on a run of scoring five goals in five games, and then you wouldn't see see him again for another ten matches. And when he wasn't on form, his shoulders dropped. He wasn't chasing down defenders, and nothing happened. Whereas Nemeth, even if he wasn't putting the ball in the back of the net, you knew you were going to get going to get that seven out of ten performance from him. That's what McLaren loved, and that's why he ended up being such a popular player under Steve McLaren. He wasn't he wasn't perfect, far from it. But at that point, if you weren't going to be technically brilliant and someone who could change a game like a Mendieta or a Zenden, you had to be consistent, and that was the big battle that he faced because. When he came in, McLaren, we, we spoke about that kind of cultural shift. Middlesbrough were full of players who could be a 10 out of 10 on their day, but more often than not, there were maybe about four or five. Like, But people would remember the one game where they were perfect and, and that sort of thing. But someone like Nemeth coming in, he was 
he was the ideal because the absolute basics of what Steve McLaren wanted was someone who he knew what he was going to be getting from them on a Saturday afternoon. And so from that kind of point of view, Nemeth kind of summarises what McLaren and Middlesbrough were sort of about over those few years. I always thought with Nemeth, I thought he would end up having the career that Macaroni ended up with. I think Macaroni ended up playing until he was 39, I think, or 40. He played probably twice as many games in the, the time after Borough than he did actually when he was with us, scoring goals as well at Serie B level and Serie A. He scored goals as well. I always thought Nemeth would have been that, you know, the Teddy Sheringham-style player maybe on the continent in, you know, mid-table in the Eredivisie in Holland or somewhere like that. But it, it's interesting looking at the actual attend, um, sorry, not attendance, appearance figures for the strikers that season. So this is starts. The job started 19. Nemeth started 17, Macaroni started 13, Ricketts started seven, and Malcolm Christie started seven. So not one of the strikers started more than 20 games. And Janinio, who was kind of the second striker he played as, didn't he, all like a traditional number 10, he only started 26. So really mm-hmm. it was that, that was such a massive issue. But there were some great games along the way. There's the Arsenal, obviously, semi-finals, and you've got Janino wheel. I've used that gift so many times on Twitter for all sorts, that Janino goal. But the Carlin Cup final was, was transformative, wasn't it? Like, genuinely, genuinely transformative as a club. I remember I'd been to all the Cup finals in 97, then 98, and the replays, and you just felt like, I mean, when you're young, you feel like it's never going to happen again, but it wasn't that long that we had to wait for it. But that really, really did transform the club, didn't it? Getting that monkey off your back of winning a major trophy. And then, like you say, having the option to spread your wings in terms of transfers for the players that we can attract from the Premier League as well. Not these um, players from other leagues that, you know, you can just double their wages and they'd come to you, but those Premier League players, that but that that Carlin Cup will was just was just huge, wasn't it? It was it was huge. It was, it was, it was absolutely massive. Um, for obvious reasons, we is it's clear. Everyone, everyone knows about the fact that you won that competition and you qualified for the UEFA Cup. But there, there were so many sort of like sliding doors kind of moments about it. You, you mentioned earlier on in the conversation about Bolton Wanderers and how they were on a similar trajectory to us. And the future of both of those clubs could have been so much different if it had gone Bolton's way because Bolton, as much as um, as much as people didn't like how they played under Sam Allardyce and the team that they were building and they were a bit old school and that sort of thing, they were doing the exact same thing as what Middlesbrough were doing at that time. They were building a team that had their own identity. They had these um, they had players like JJ Akotja and Jork IF and I think I, I think they might have had Piero at that point or maybe he came shortly after, but they were building a team that had these role models that were kind of coming in and they could kind of lead the way. If Middlesbrough had lost that, it would have been Bolton who would have kicked on. Bolton would have been the team that that following summer were going out and signing the Dukas and Hasselbanks of the Premier League and that sort of thing. And so it is really quite interesting because I think when you're in that position, like what Middlesbrough were, it just, every, every season or every few seasons, there was always a club from mid-table in the Premier League who were there or thereabouts pushing towards those European places. And it changes so quickly. It could have been Bolton that season, I think, the year after, I think Blackburn were there or thereabouts, and there was a few teams like that. But yeah, it was just it was crucial for Middlesbrough to take that opportunity when they had it. You mentioned about the the kind of cup finals that we'd had previously. Thankfully, this time we weren't playing a, a Chelsea or someone like that. It was it was a Bolton who I don't think people would say that we were um, 
we we might have been favourites for it going into the going into the game, but it was pretty even. It was pretty even. You were kind of going into it thinking this could easily go either way, but I think what Middlesbrough had that season compared to um, not necessarily the the previous cup finals, but what they've had compared to the previous years was that experience, that big game know how of what it took to get over the line. You've you've got Danny Mills, who, like we said before, he'd been at the World Cup. He'd been playing in the Champions League. He got to the Champions League semi-final with Leeds. You had Mendieta, who had played in the biggest matches in world football up until that point. A game at the Millennium Stadium against Bolton was a walk in the park for Mendieta at that point. He, he wasn't bothered. Zenden, he'd been playing in the World Cups. I think they they'd got to uh, I think they'd got to like a semi-final of the World Cup when he was playing with them. But obviously, he'd been, he'd been at Chelsea, he'd been at ba- uh, Barcelona, been at PSV Eindhoven at that point. Um, you got Janino, who just made it look so so easy. And then on top of that, you had your kind of model professional players, the likes of Gareth Southgate, the likes of Hugo Echior, the likes of George Boateng, even the likes of Deriva, who had that experience. They weren't going to be overawed by the occasion of what was happening on that day. And so I think the team that Steve McLaren put out was really notable because a lot of people looked at the team sheet that day and thought, Chris Riggett maybe should have been given a chance. He's done well for us this season or... Oh, Macaroni, he's, he's probably a better finisher than Joseph Job. Oh, maybe he should start off. Downing, he's looked good in the last few weeks. Maybe he should play. But the focus for Steve McLaren was on naming a team who had the, the mental capacity to deal with the occasion and could deal with it with no problem whatsoever. And it comes back to that consistency, but he wanted a team of players who would go out there and he knew that he was going to get a minimum of like a seven out of 10 performance from them. He didn't want someone like Downing. Downing could have gone out there and absolutely ripped Bolton to shreds, but he could have wilted under the pressure because he was only a young lad. He wanted someone out there who could deal with the occasion, put the game to bed and do it that way. And ultimately that's what happened. And that was the the reward and the, the culmination of several years hard work, both on and off the pitch to, to build a team that could handle occasions like that. I think there's so many key points within, within what you're saying, Phil, and how the, the club were and how the club had acted just a couple of years early and bringing McLaren and his team in and changing the direction of the club completely. And I think it rubbed off on the fans. I think I think we enjoyed the final. I think the 96-97 one, he was so... There was the three point. We were all singing for the three points. We, we knew we weren't playing as well as we should have been in the league. The 97-98 one felt like just a, a bonus. You were just happy to be there because we just... As long as we got promoted back to the Premier League, I remember going to that final thinking, oh, this is this is this is great, isn't it? We were at another final. We're a first division club. That's great. The Liverpool semi-final was probably more the game that was crucial just to get to the final rather than the actual thing. And this is the one where I thought, we can enjoy this final here. We've got a good team. Bolton, I think, finished a few points ahead of us that season because they were a good, they were a good side, Bolton. And um we could enjoy it. And obviously the fact that we scored two goals within seven minutes or eight minutes or whatever it was, is just mad because you'd had so much bad luck, even with the replays at Hillsborough in the Leicester game when Claridge scored and all those sort of memories that we'd had before. It was just huge. And for the club and to see Southgate lift the trophy for Gibson to be there and for him to have won a trophy while he's been chairman was just, was just incredible. But I love that team. I think that's, I think that was. I remember I, I was at uni in this um, this year, and everyone was like, "Oh yeah, you're a Borough fan. Oh yeah, they're a really good Premier League team, aren't they? Oh, they're a really good mid-table team, aren't they? Oh, they've got some good players. Oh yeah, I've heard of Mendy. You, you were that club, you know what I mean? It's probably the club that we want to be now, and I know a lot of fans probably 
might disagree, but I'd love to be a mid-table Premier League team. <laughs> you know what oh, I mean? I know. Do you know what I mean? Because that's yeah, absolutely that, that's kind of what that's where we're at, isn't it? And that's I think that's probably where we want to be back to, isn't it? Similar to what this team was like, some really good internationals, like you say, with some of that sort of stardust sprinkled around it as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, you said it just there about being a mid-table Premier League team. I think at that point le- leading up to that, um, I don't know. Mid table in the Premier League, it almost, almost seemed boring at the time, which sounds it sounds so arrogant in hindsight to kind of say it. It's like, oh god, I'm so bored of finishing twelfth in the Premier League every single season, yeah. sort of thing. And it's, um, yeah, I don't know. It was, um, yeah, I, I think it was just that, that team that Steve McLaren was building. I think what was just so exciting about it was we'd kind of moved away from being the team who were battling relegation. We did a few years where it was kind of building and we're finishing twelfth, thirteenth. 14 sort of thing but it was starting to build a team where you're thinking hang on we might actually be able to like crack this top eight this top six in the in the Premier League and when you've got players like that it just makes everyone everyone just gets on board a little bit more everyone's going to the home games with a little bit more optimism they're not going oh one all against Blackburn oh that was a decent result that'll keep the uh keep the relegation yeah. battle at bay for a little bit longer you're kind of thinking we should be winning this and if you do win this game it's like right I think we're, we're better than Blackburn you could be coming up against a Man United at home, and you're thinking we might actually get a result here. We're good enough to act like we weren't going into those games going, oh, let's let's keep it to a two 0 let's keep it respectable. Like you were going into those matches going, I think we can get something against them here, and that was something that we did as well. It was it goes back to what I was kind of saying earlier. Just there were a team who knew that they could beat anybody on their day, and they had that confidence about them and that big game experience, and that was the kind of shift where you were going into every single game going, we could we could beat this team. And it almost became a little bit frustrating because they'd raise their game to play against the Man United or an Arsenal and then to play Wigan and they'd lose. And you'd be like, how on earth have we lost to Wigan when we just beat Chelsea 3-0 the previous yeah, week, yeah. whatever it kind of was. But um, yeah, that was what was happening at the time. And that's why it was so exciting for Middlesbrough supporters to, uh, to get on board with because something, something special was happening at that point. Yeah, this is probably the time when the Premier League starts to go down the two different paths, doesn't it? Abramovich arrives and starts spending hundreds of millions, which then made United spend hundreds of millions and Liverpool and then eventually City and Spurs. And the, the team like, you know, it's probably West Ham who we were more like, so West Ham from this season um, competing in that top eight, top seven, but maybe not quite having the the reach as a club to, to step on that next level. But, to be fair to the club, I mean, they went for it. We When we got Hasselbank and Viduka the that summer, 2004, you felt like you weren't signing a pasta Alan Boxic or a Ravinelli because he was getting 50 grand a week. You were signing players who were thinking, this club's in Europe. If I play for them, we're probably going to finish even higher than they did last season. And we might, well, you know, compete for a trophy or win another four or five games and pushes on into Europe. That season, we talked a little bit before about strikers. Hasselbank started 36 league games that season. So you could see already the difference was, you've got a number one striker, he's got 16 goals. There you go. You're not on... I remember the days when you used to look in the programme, you'd be looking at our top score, and it'd be like seven, six, eight, if you include the League Cup. <laughs> and now here we've got someone in Hasselbank. Obviously, Viduk had some injury problems this season, so didn't score as many. But Hasselbank, he was he was different class, wasn't he? On the pitch as a leader and then actual quality-wise as a player, he was another Southgate-style 
mentality shift, wasn't he? Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank was a player who he, he came into the club and he was he was so different to everything that Middlesbrough had had for so many. Probably you could probably go back as far as I'm, I'm going to rule Boxic out of this because he was a bit of a different kind of case. But you could probably go back to like a Ravinelli for the last time that you had a strike with it. Someone who came in and just commanded respect from yeah. everybody. Yeah. Um, with the best will in the world, I think he came in and. Probably people didn't like him that much because like, people he kind of came in and Middlesbrough were used to strikers who worked hard, kind of got their head down, did their business, but weren't that vocal. Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank was coming in and he was shouting at his teammates straight away, like, poor Stuart Downing. He was a young lad who was making his way in the first team. He was probably like, oh, I think I'm doing all right here. I'm, I'm, I'm starting to crack this first team thing. He came in and Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank just berated him, like telling him what to do. Been like, stop messing around on the ball on the left wing, just get it into the box. And he was that player who, as well as being a reliable, he, I think that was what was important. He, he backed it up with goals himself, but he was he was such a leader. And it had been so long since Middlesbrough had had a leader at the top end of the pitch. We Obviously, we had Southgate and we had Ekiog and we had Mark Schwartz Ringall, who was a leader, and we had like it in midfield. But we'd, we'd, it had been so long since we'd had someone at the top end saying, get the ball into the box. I'm going to put it in the back of the net. And he was that player. And it just, it made everything so much more um, effective for us just moving forward because the ball would go into the final third and it wasn't a case that it had been in previous years where it was like, right, if we if we get it into the box maybe 10 times, maybe once Nemeth or Macaroni will be able to put it in the bottom corner. It was get it into the box and the, like give him two or three chances, that ball's going to be in the back of the net. And that was what he made a difference with because obviously it was Viduka as well, but Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank was a player and Middles- Middlesbrough were feared that season because they'd already started building a team we've mentioned mm-hmm. it before the defense mm-hmm. in the midfield was um there or thereabouts it was kind of taking shape in the previous years but what we were missing was that player who could turn some of those draws into wins and what you saw in the early part of the uh, the 2004 2005 season was that Middlesbrough were the the real deal they were a team that yeah they could do the build-up play they had people mm-hmm. like Mendieta, the Zenden who could create the chances, but now they had someone who given given half a chance, he was going to put it in the back of the net, and that was that was very very exciting. Yeah, I think oh, we have to remember we finished two wins away from Champions League places that season. Two two wins, you know, we weren't fifteen points behind, twenty points behind like you get now. It was two wins. We only lost eleven games that season. Liverpool lost eleven just away from home, so it was such a a strong side, and you look, you look at it now, and you've got Schwarter, Parvi, Riggett, Southgate, Frank Cadreau, the back five, brilliant. Ray Parler was obviously brought in on decent wages, if we're led to believe. But again, another one of those leaders that takes you to the next level. But you've got James Morrison sort of behind him, waiting to step out into that role. The the move from Zenden from wide left to central midfield, when Mendieta was obviously injured, getting down and out wide was brilliant from McLaren. It was real. I, mean, I remember Zenden coming into midfield and I thought, he is he has got no chance of being a central midfielder here. He was great out wide and he was great at getting in the box, wasn't he, from whatever was coming in from the right from Mendieta and he scored goals. But that move into the middle just transformed him completely into that player arriving to support Hasselbank and downing. I mean, again, he's had a lot of stick over the years, Downing, but he was absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. As a kid, he must he was probably only, was he 19 this season? 19, 20? 
Yeah. He's very, yeah. very young. And to think he was starting, well, probably nearly 30 games that season. And not he did not look out of place at all. And this team were, after, what, 15, 20 games, they were still sixth in the league. And you thought, if we finish sixth, we'll be happy with that. It wasn't like a, as we'd had before, we were eighth by Christmas and then 15th by May. You know what I mean? This was a team where you thought, if we finish sixth, we probably deserve to carry on with it, don't we? Tell us a bit, Phil, because obviously your book, um, as we mentioned before, takes in a lot of this period, but those European nights are something that, especially talking about this period of time, is so different to any other period in Borough's history. Talk to, talk through us that, you know, from the club's point of view and sort of the things that people have said to you in terms of when they've looked back and as you've been writing the book, how that was just huge, wasn't it, for the club? It was, it was such a massive, massive deal. Yeah, it was. It was, um, yeah, <laughs> it's something where when you're in the middle of it, it becomes... It's, it's amazing how quickly fans get um, get accustomed to it. You, you're going into those games and you, you've got the you've got the Banica Strava games and the, the Lazio games at the start where it's like it's just it's just amazing like why are Lazio in Middlesbrough on a Thursday night it's actually in the season this isn't like a, an, an end of July yeah, friendly yeah. this is like one of the biggest names in European football at that point albeit at that point Lazio were kind of on the bit of the a downhill, but they were a massive name. It's like, why are you, why are you here? Like, like playing like our, our first team sort of thing. And it was just, it was just disbelief really. And yeah, I, I just think over those two years, it was just, it was just amazing to watch. And I think that fans, I think fans did relish it. Um, I, I do think that people got accustomed to it quite quickly. I think after the first season, um, I don't think I'm wrong in saying that. I, th- I think the novelty wore off a little bit, particularly in like the group stage, because uh, you're playing people like um, playing people like Zanti and Grosshop- uh, like Grasshoppers and, uh, and people like that. And I think the attendances in the group stage that second season were a little bit disappointing because people knew what it was about. They knew that Middlesbrough should be beating this team 3-0, particularly with the players that we kind of had. And that was kind of part of it. But I think for, for most supporters, what people remember are those those massive nights when you like, second season you're playing Roma like this like I mentioned there about Lazio and how big a team they were in Europe they were Lazio were a little bit past it like Roma were a top team at that point Roma were absolutely top class they played uh, Stuttgart in the uh, in the round before and you, you were playing teams that were on the top of their game in some of the the biggest leagues in in Europe and yeah I think for Middlesbrough to, not only enjoy some of those games, but we, we came into our own. It Once again, it comes back to that theme that Middlesbrough knew they could beat anybody on their day, whether it was in the group stage or whether it was over two legs. Middlesbrough weren't scared of coming up against these teams who had spent the last 30, 40 years every season playing in Europe, felt that they had some gone God-given right to be challenging for the UEFA Cup trophy every season. Middlesbrough came in and they, they just had no fear. Um, that came from the players who had started the journey but then you've got to remember that you've got people like Hasselbank and Viduka and players like that who had been there and done it. They, they'd got to the last stages of European competitions with the likes of Chelsea and Leeds and, and that sort of thing. And I think for Middlesbrough supporters, just to kind of be a part of that journey and to, to enjoy success more than anything, to, to see their side beating these big European names, going to Rome and progressing sort of thing, like, I don't know, a few years previous, if Middlesbrough in some 
some parallel universe had found themselves playing at the Olympic Stadium in Rome in the middle of the season, it would have been a game where it's like, we're going to get tonked 4-0, but it's fine. Just go and enjoy the occasion. But Middlesbrough went there and they were better than them. And they conquered the occasion and they conquered the hostile atmosphere. And it was just, it was all of these kind of, um, all of these experiences, which made it such a, a rich experience for supporters to be a part of. And obviously that you've then got the, um, the Riverside Knights where you're playing, you're playing Basel, you're playing Stal Bucharest at home. Um, and it was just, oh, it was just absolutely mind boggling to, to be at those, those kind of matches when, when you think the team's dead and buried and somehow you come back and oh, it was just, it was just absolute magic. I think that's the only word that you can sort of use to describe it because you, you couldn't write it. You couldn't believe it at the time. And what at this point, what 16 years on when Middlesbrough have just missed out on the playoffs and the championship to think to get to the UEFA cup final, it's, it's just absolutely mind blowing. And it's it almost beggars belief at this point. It's, with every year that ticks by since that UEFA Cup adventure, it becomes more and more unbelievable that it kind of happened. And without, without trying to sound uh, too cliche, it's one of those things where it's, it, it feels like a dream because it was that long ago now. And because we haven't got anywhere near it again since, it's one of these things where you think, did that actually happen? Or have I actually just dreamed that we, we got to the UEFA Cup final and we beat these teams and we were playing with these players and that sort of thing. And it was just... Yeah, it was just an absolutely mental time. I think you made the point before earlier, Phil, about we were a very good on our day team. That that season, we had a lot of good days and we finished. We had some days that, I mean, I always remember the Arsenal uh, 5-3 when we went 3-1 up in that 0-4-0-5 season. And that's where you think, God, we're playing such good football here. We really could take us on to the next level. I remember the sporting quarter, uh, well, not quarterfinal, we were playing to get into the quarterfinal, but they looked like a higher class of team than we did in that game. But then we still had a lot of good players. We still, you know, we were still going places. And it's interesting, isn't it, how when I when I started supporting Middlesbrough, our highlights were the Anglo-Italian Cup, Jack Charlton winning the second division, not going out of business and being part of the first Premier League season. That was my sort of previous 15, 20 years before I started as a fan. If you're just starting out now, or even if you're in your teens, I started supporting, heaven forbid, when Gordon Strachan was in charge. The previous 20 years that you've had were four cup finals, a UEFA run to the last 16, a UEFA run to the, the final, and now it's like polar opposites, isn't it? But I think, I think what the club found difficult for me, I think the following season, because we were playing so many games in the, well, in the, in the, year sorry, Europa League or UEFA Cup, whatever you want to say. We just, we didn't quite have that depth of squad, did we? He brought a lot of young players through, to be fair. And good good on McLaren because some of them were good and some of them, like people like James Morrison, we should never have let go when we did because they definitely would have had a place in the side. But that 05-06 team, despite the fact that we we bought Yakubu, who, who was brilliant, really, wasn't he? And then Viduka turned, like, turned up fit and scored a ton of goals as well. Imagine, imagine. I mean, I still can't get my head around it now that we have three players who scored more than 15 goals in a season. It's absolutely mad, isn't it? That we had three of them who did it. It was just, it was such a, yeah, that it was just such a mad time from that kind of point of view of the strikers. To, to have three players who, they all had different strengths, uh, but you knew that 
any of them could cause problems for any team on their day. And that was what was so exciting. Even if Hasselbank was left on the bench, you knew that Viduka and Yakubu could do it and vice versa. You, you knew that they were players who could give any defence um, just an absolutely torrid time. And that season in particular, um, you, you mentioned that it was just there were so many matches being played. And you, you're right, it, it, was a, it was a massive time for Middlesbrough's academy to, to bring through those kinds of players. Um, being brutally honest, they came through far quicker than what they probably should have done. But what an experience for them. Yeah. They came in and what I think what was more impressive was these young players. I think the likes of um, the likes of James Morrison, he was he was just about breaking through on his own anyway. Um, but it, it was the players like um, Lee Catamol, David Wheater, um, Adam Johnson at that point, those kind of players as well, who... They were getting their opportunity and they were, they were having David Wheater made his debut away against Sporting Lisbon in that second European season. And it's just how many young Middlesbrough players get the opportunity to, uh, to play in those kinds of games. And I think just credit to them that they were players who, yeah, they, they, they've turned out to be brilliant players and players that Middlesbrough should have kept hold of. But at that point, when they were only 17, 18 years of age, they came in and they were holding their own in this Middlesbrough team and you you weren't, it wasn't terrifying if Middlesbrough had an injury in central defence and David Weeder had to come in and play because you were like, do you know what? He's a good kid. Yeah, I, I reckon yeah. he'll do all right. Or Downing had played every game and Adam Johnson was coming in on the left wing and you were like, do you know what? I reckon he's going to cause some trouble for them. And it was just, um, it was just such an exciting time for, uh, for Middlesbrough's academy in particular. And, there was loads of games, and I think Middlesbrough did run out of steam uh, towards the end of that UEFA Cup campaign. I think that's ultimately what ended up happening in um, in Eindhoven. But um, yeah, I think the fact that um, they got that far in the first place and it gave those young kids the opportunity to to get a taste for football at that level was just was just amazing. And that, that was almost what was brilliant about it: the fact that yeah, Middlesbrough reached the final stage of these tournaments, and yeah, they signed these great players to do it, but. Middlesbrough never lost sight of who they were either. They were a club that were proud of being from Teesside and they were proud of the academy. And every step along the way, Middlesbrough's academy was at the centre of it. There was always at least one or two players who were in the starting eleven on the bench, unused substitutes because they were 17 years old and really like were not quite ready to be in the first team. But Middlesbrough never kind of lost sight of their roots. And I think that was what kind of added almost like a slight richness to the um, to the experience as well. The fact that Middlesbrough didn't sell out to get there. They were the kind of their roots were very much ingrained in what the achievements were at that time. Yeah, definitely. And I think even even the roots of the fact that despite the progress in the FA Cup that season, the the um UEFA Cup that season, we still had a fan throw a season ticket at McLaren. The team got booed in some of the home games because the performance was so abject. We were very much a win-loss kind of team. It was literally a Jekyll and Hyde sort of team through a lot of that season. There was there was some big, big moments because when you when you look back and when you think about it, some of the teams that we played against, as you mentioned before, Phil, like going to going to Rome and scoring that vital away goal, you know, being in Stuttgart and beating Stuttgart, and then talking about the young players. I mean, Stuart Downing in that second half against Stour is one of the probably one of the greatest performances by a Borough player ever because he was a skinny little left winger in his early 20s who set up every goal. 
basically, in that second half. He, he rescued that whole game just because, like you were saying it before about Hasselbank setting those standards, but Downing realised what he needed to do at that point. I'm, my delivery's brilliant. I can beat a man, get it in the box. And it's a shame that when Southgate took over, because the quality of the rest of the team wasn't what it should have been, he had to then become a different type of player and probably took on a little bit too much for us, which again was a little bit difficult. But we played 64 games that season. People are going on about Liverpool playing 63, but we played 64 games, almost two Premier League seasons in one with a squad that, I mean, 10 of them were under 20 and born within 10 minutes of Middlesbrough, which in itself is is phenomenal. The Fulham game at the end of the season where everybody was born within however many miles of the club. There was only Colin Cooper that was over 23 or 24, wherever it was. Those sorts of things are, are quite incredible, really. Eindhoven, never watched the full game back. I've seen the goals a couple of times on like a minute highlights, but that was devastating. That that was devastating. The Viduka not getting a penalty was just awful. But for me, I was more disappointed with looking at McLaren on that pitch at the end and thinking, this could be it now. Like this is the end of something that was that could have been really big. And I think if he'd have signed another five-year contract with us, even a three-year contract, I think we could have been, it could have been a really. I think we'd still be in the Premier League now. Genuinely, do. Yeah, I, th- I think I have to agree. It was, um, yeah, it was um, a really, yeah. I mean, the the celebrations of that season, yeah, it was, it was, it was amazing what they achieved. But there, there was. There was also a lot of, like you mentioned before, there was, there was a lot of drama going on during that season. There was a, an awful lot of uncertainty as well. That January, um, that was when Steve McLaren started getting linked with the uh, the England job. That was rumbling on for about four months before it came to a, a resolution. Um, Steve McLaren wanted the job. It was it, it wasn't it was a um, a factor that was proved to be kind of um, unsettling behind the scenes. Um, in January, you had. Um, Mark Schwartz are handing in a transfer request. Hugo Ekiog was on the verge of leaving for uh, for West Brom, I think it was. Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank was on the verge of leaving as well. There was a lot going on behind the scenes and and fans weren't happy either. Like I said before, um, it's very it's, it's very easy for supporters to kind of get swept up in what's happening. And Middlesbrough were in a brilliant position, but all of a sudden when Middlesbrough weren't winning home games against the likes of a Wigan or a Portsmouth and those kind of things. Pressure was starting to build and McLaren, the, the, the foundations of McLaren's success on the pitch were that he made Middlesbrough hard to beat. And that even at that point, that was still his kind of focus. And so there was a lot of games where Middlesbrough didn't go and attack the game. They didn't go on the front foot in a game where fans thought that Middlesbrough should have won like 4-0 against a, a Wigan or something like that. I keep saying Wigan, but they're just kind of an example of it. Yeah. Um, and, and fans would get frustrated, but what fans would get frustrated at more was the fact that Steve McLaren would come out after the matches and it'd be like, we played some stunning football. Oh, we were breathtaking at times. And people were at the Riverside and they were, they were saying, we weren't. Like, we've literally just watched the 90 minutes of football and it was, it was boring. It was awful to watch. And you're coming out and telling us that it was like breathtaking football. And so there, were, there was just a bit of a divide between Steve McLaren and and the Middlesbrough fans, and that, that relationship was getting a little bit stretched. And so that was kind of starting to uh, 
to breed sort of uncertainty. And I think by the time it got to the end of the season, although it was it was sad that Stephen Claren was leaving to go for England, there was there was a feeling that something kind of had to change. There was a lot of speculation about McLaren's role during that season anyway, regardless of England. There was talk of him getting sacked in January and February, and a lot of people thought we need to get rid of him and, and replace him like for like with someone who can bring some some freshness to the uh, to the team and so I think while it was sad that he left at the end of the season I think there was a definite feeling that it was the end of an era anyway with him leaving and I think a lot of the players at Middlesbrough had signed over those previous years they were they were they were coming to the end of their contracts I think Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank's contract expired after the UEFA Cup final um and it, it was it was financially as well there was a lot of pressure on the club without I don't think the UEFA Cup was particularly lucrative to start off with, but without European football, without that slight bit of extra money and the kind of prestige that came, like that came with it, a lot of players didn't necessarily want to stay with Middlesbrough, and they kind of they saw it as the end of a chapter as well. So you saw people like Hasselbank moving on. You saw people like Frank Kadrew, who had been there through the whole McLaren era, thinking, you know what? I think now's the time when I need a new challenge. And so what happened was after the UEFA Cup final, it really was chapter closed. And players moved on and a new era started. And it was an era of, yeah, it was, it was, it was an era of struggle and hardship. And financially, Middlesbrough had probably spent more than they should have done on wages and stuff. And it, it wasn't a case of um, we're in massive dire straits financially or anything like that, but they knew it wasn't sustainable. They knew that it wasn't sustainable to be paying the amount of money that they were paying for likes of, uh, the likes of... Um, Mendieta or Baduca or Hasselbank and so it kind of came to a point where as it does with Middlesbrough where the focus turned to uh, to long-term sustainability and bringing in players who um sorry um bringing in players who um could um like come in and again be the future of Middlesbrough and so what we saw was a massive period of transition under Gareth Southgate and would Gareth Southgate have been Middlesbrough manager if Middlesbrough won the UEFA Cup and got into Europe the next season? I, I don't think so. I don't think so. But I think the argument was that as much as it was great to see Middlesbrough uh, win against Stalbuk Rest and get to the UEFA Cup final, I think a lot of people feel that Middlesbrough won the wrong semi-final. Because if Middlesbrough had beaten West Ham in the FA Cup semi-final, would have been in Europe the next season with that one game because... West Ham played Liverpool, and I think that was the season where um, Liverpool had qualified for the Champions League anyway, so automatically West Ham got into the UEFA Cup as a result of that. And if Middlesbrough had just overcome that one game, would have been in Europe for a third season. A lot of these players might have wanted to stay. And you mentioned before about the kind of changing landscape of the, the English game at that point. I think if Middlesbrough had been in Europe for a third season, would have been a lot like, would have been cemented in that kind of upper echelon of the Premier League. And I think when in a, in a time when the rich clubs were kind of getting richer and it was kind of getting becoming a bit more of a gap between the top clubs and the mid-table clubs, Middlesbrough could have been in that leading pack at that point and kind of been part of that pack that were moving away from the mid-table teams. But as we said at the start of the conversation, when we beat uh, Bolton in the uh, the Carlin Cup final, um, it's it's all about like sliding doors, isn't it? Like Middlesbrough had their, I guess their their time in the sun, and um, yeah, ultimately football. Or football is uh, cyclical in a way. It's um, it it does go in it does go in circles, and I think Middlesbrough they had their moment, and yeah, it was um, it was a dream for supporters, and I think when you look back on it now, it's 
it's it's hard to believe that it actually happened to the to the degree that it actually did. Yeah, it's it's such it's such a, an interesting thing to talk about as well, isn't it? And the next period from 06 to 09, you could probably write a book about that as well, couldn't you, in terms of how the how the club changed? And I don't think anyone would want to read one about the Strachan one, so don't get any ideas about that. But <laughs> well, your book, Phil, Everyone Around My House for a Palm, or covers, covers this period, doesn't it? This period of McLaren arriving, the triumph at Cardiff, and the journey to Eindhoven. I suppose... The, the last thing I want to ask, I'll ask you your, your Borough 11 from this period of time, but the last thing I want to ask, I suppose, in terms of you writing this book, did you reflect on this period any differently to when you'd lived it as a fan? You told us at the start about how that was the start of your journey as a fan, a season ticket holder, and obviously you feel certain things during that time, maybe more passionately as a fan. Do you think that it made you look at the, the club and that period differently when you were sort of sitting down and writing about it and researching through it? Um, I, I think it did, to be honest. Um, I think when 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 I was living the experience, as as you said, as a, a young Middlesbrough supporter, as a season ticket holder, it was just it was amazing, and you were only seeing what was kind of happening on the pitch. And may, maybe I was too young to kind of to fully soak up the kind of like ongoing like narratives like around the club, and you don't really understand that players are people and managers are people and people struggle under the pressures of kind of what's happening and that sort of thing. So when, when people started booing Steve McLaren, you just, I, I couldn't get my head around it because you were kind of like, why, like, why is he getting booed? Like, I don't understand what's like, what's gone wrong. Or when people are saying, I want to leave the club in this January, I was like, I don't, why do you want to leave? Like we're, do, like, we're doing well. So, you know what I mean? It's, you've kind of got that naivety when you're a young fan, but what I wanted to do was when I was writing the book, I, w- I wanted to speak to people who were part of the journey, whether they, whether they were journalists who were covering the club, whether it was uh, parts of um, Steve McLaren's coaching staff, whether it was um, people who worked in like the media departments and behind the scenes at the club. It was just really interesting to almost kind of gain that adult perspective on what was sort of happening. And it, w- it was undoubtedly a huge period of celebration for the club. But as we mentioned before, it, it wasn't... It didn't go without its struggles behind the scenes. And that was kind of something that I kind of wanted to uh, to tap into um, a little bit more. It was, I I personally found it like fascinating finding out about um, the stuff that was going on behind the scenes and Steve McLaren's relationship with his coaches and the players and the media team and stuff that I didn't understand at the time, but maybe now as someone who kind of works in the industry as as a football writer and that sort of thing, it's something that I kind of understand a little bit more in terms of like, even things like the dynamics between a manager and their media team at a football club and kind of knowing how that sort of works and kind of understanding that that relationship was strained because Steve McLaren, um, during during his time at Middlesbrough, he did listen to the media team, but he took his media advice from Bill Pesek, who was his number two, who was the club psychologist, because his focus was on making sure that his players remained motivated. So every time that Steve McLaren came out after a game and he was saying we were breathtaking, Jonathan Greening was fabulous on the ball today and people were like, oh, he, he wasn't. It was because he'd been instructed to do so by his team behind the scenes and like the sports psychologists behind the scenes who were saying this is what's going to give them a boost. And it almost, it didn't really matter what the fans thought because the focus was on getting the best out of the players. And I think just kind of delving into that sort of, that sort of world and kind of understanding it from that kind of point of view was just fascinating for me to, uh, to kind of get stuck into and something that I really enjoyed. Yeah. I mean, it's a mammoth task 
you know, writing a book, but I suppose something that is so dear to your heart in terms of being a Borough fan, I think helps, doesn't it? But you can get Phil's book through Pitch Publishing, who it's published through. You can follow it on Twitter at, at Palmo Book, and Phil is at Phil Spence, S-P-E-N-C 23. So do follow Phil uh, and do follow the account. And it's great to have some Borough books out there about our modern history, because a lot of us know about, you know, in 86, we nearly died. We know about the Robson Riverside era. But this is a real high point, I think, for, for the Borough team and the club and the area and everything that went with it. And I can only imagine what this would be like if this five years were from 2023 to 2028 and Wilder's building a team to do X, Y and Z. It would be seen as such a different thing in the context of the, the current game or the state of the game in terms of what McLaren did. But just thinking back to that period for my last question, my final one is, what is your Borough 11 from that McLaren era? Whatever formation you like, I know McLaren liked a bit of a 4-4-2 or a 4-3-1-2 and all sorts he used to play, didn't he? But what, what would be your top 11 from that era? Um, so I think my top 11, I've, I've made some notes for this part because I wanted to get it right. Um, yeah, so I've gone for a 4-4-2 because that was a classic Steve McLaren formation. Um, I've gone for Mark Schwarzer in goal. Um, I think it's no no contest with him, really. I think yeah. as much as um, he, he was the number one throughout his, pretty much his entire reign, particularly through the, the Carling Cup years and the UEFA Cup years. And as much as he dropped an absolute clangor in the Carling Cup finally. did make up for it with a couple of good saves afterwards. You've got the Man City penalty save. And although he did then request to leave in the final year of the UEFA Cup season, I don't think you can uh, doubt that he was the uh, the top man for that job. Um, right back, I've gone for Danny Mills just because I, I just loved watching him. Like He, he wasn't... Um, he wasn't a fancy player. He wasn't someone who was graceful on the ball. Far from it. He was just, he was so angry and it was brilliant to watch because he was, um, he was a player who you want an angry bully of a player on your team. Like everyone's, everyone's so used to seeing it on the other team and if, everyone hates the player on the opposite team who they get booed every single week and they, they rough up your players and they're putting in late challenges and the stray elbows going in. But Middlesbrough had him on our team, and for that season, it was just it was. I, I personally really enjoyed watching it because, as much as I love a, a good goal or a, a trip or whatever it is, I just love a crunching tackle as well. Um, and so he was someone who um, I definitely have a right back. I think Michael Reisiger came in and he was okay. And um, I think you've got to give a kind of special mention to the likes of Stuart Parnaby and Tony McMahon, who were part of the, the young group who came in and adapted so well. Um, yeah, but um, I think Danny Mills was the boy at right back. Um, central defence, I've gone with Gareth Southgate and Chris Riggett. Um, Gareth Southgate, for obvious reasons, um, he was just the ultimate role model during that time. Just missed the consistency, didn't look phased. Although he was getting a little bit older during that time when he was when he was at Middlesbrough, he was he was just as at it as what he was when he when he first arrived or in his kind of prime years when he was um, at Aston Villa. And I've gone with Chris Riggett as well, just because. As much as Hugo Echiog was, um, it was someone who had the experience and he had the strength. And if, he, if he'd stayed fit, he probably would have been Southgate's first choice partner. But Chris Riggett just, he was, he was kind of like the ultimate apprentice under Gareth Southgate. He was just someone who, he didn't put a foot wrong ever. He, he was consistent. He was far from spectacular. But I said it before, it's kind of like that seven out of 10 thing. You want someone who 
isn't going to make a mistake. And you could just, he was listening to Southgate and Southgate was guiding him through these games. But over the years, he grew in confidence and grew in stature. And um, yeah, at the end of the day, it was someone who was a massive part of Middlesbrough's journey. Um, left back, I've gone with Frank Kadrew because how can you not have him uh, in there? He was, he was a player who was just fabulous to watch and also just a bit of a liability at times, but in the best possible way. <laughs> he kind of, I think what made him spectacular to kind of watch was the fact that he was so fiery and he was so passionate. And that brought out some moments of absolute brilliance, like the goals from range and the free kicks and some of the tackles and his marauding runs into the opposition half that were just fantastic. But you also knew he had a temper on him. And so you think of his um, you think of his two-footed challenge on um on it was it was Pamaro at Tottenham, where it was just it was probably the worst tackle that you'd seen up until that point. And he got a straight red card and like and that sort of thing. But that was that was the kind of line that you drew with Frank Kadrew. You, you knew that he was someone who could provide moments of brilliance, but also someone who could just drop an absolute clangor because he, he just played on the edge every single game. Um in midfield, I've gone with uh, Guy Scamendietta, um, just because he, he was just, just such a classy operator. He didn't score a bucket load of goals. Um, he, he he got a fair few assists, but he wasn't kind of prolific from that point of view, but just the quality and the vision that he showed on the ball. Um, you look back at the um, the Carlin Cup semi-final and for Zenden's goal, he gets the headlines because of that clipped finish that he put over the uh, the goalkeeper to, uh, to put Middlesbrough in the lead in the, in the second leg at the Riverside. But that pass from Mendieta, it was a first-time ball. I don't think he was even looking in the right direction. It, it was perfectly weighted into Zenden's path beyond the defence. And it was just an unbelievable pass. And that was something that he kind of did. He, he wasn't a flashy player. He just kind of went quietly about his business and he, he just showed his class. And although he was injured in, his, in the second season... Um, he came back from injury, which was remarkable in itself. Um, and obviously there was the Man United game where he scored two, which was uh, the game that everyone kind of remembers him for. So he was just quality. Um, yeah, you've got George Boateng in midfield just because he was just missed the consistency. He was the player who played or seemed to play every single game and every single minute under Steve McLaren. And he was just the staple. And he was so good that you almost didn't know what he did, but he was so important. And you know, almost the biggest compliment that you can kind of give him is the fact that, one, you didn't know that he was there a lot of the time because of that's how effective he was and how quietly he went about his business. But the only time that you knew how important he was was I think he broke his, um, his toe in the 2005-2006 season and he was out for about two months and Middlesbrough just fell apart without, <laughs> without him in the team. And, um, yeah, it was kind of at that point, I think everyone was like, oh, my God, we like... I, I don't think we've valued George Boateng anywhere near highly enough for um, how good he's been. So, yeah, he's an obvious choice. Um, Zenden, um, I think he needs to be in there because over the three years through the, the Carling Cup and, um, sorry, his, his two years um, at the club, he was just, he was the man for the big moment. Um, I think you look at the Carling Cup semi-final and his goal against Arsenal, you look at his penalty against Bolton, you look at his goal against Lazio, it was, it was just someone who knew how to turn it on at the right moment. He wasn't spectacular all the time. There was a lot of games where he got criticism because he, he was on the, the periphery of, of things and fans did get on his back quite often because he, he was that kind of player. But when he was on and 
typically he was on during those big matches. He was someone who would quite often would prove to be Middlesbrough's match winner. And that was that was a real testament to him and his big game experience. And so that's why he was such a big part of the journey, despite, I suppose you could say, bowing out early and, uh, and moving on to Liverpool. Downing, um, yeah, the jewel in the, uh, the crown of the academy. Um, he was someone who came into the team and as much as it was... It was great to see Steve McLaren giving academy players an opportunity. Stuart Downing was someone who was he was there on merit and he was in the first team on merit. He wasn't someone who was in the starting eleven on a charitable basis or because they wanted someone from the academy in there. He was in there because he was probably in that 2004-2005 season. He was probably Middlesbrough's best player. I mean, the, the headlines go to the likes of Hasselbank and all the goals that he scored and, and that sort of thing, but... Downing was unbelievable that season. That was the season where he got his call up to uh, to the England squad. Um, he was linked with several big clubs and he, he could have moved on because he was just absolutely stunning that season. And I think what we've seen is as much as he, he gets criticism over the years and um, Middlesbrough fans don't like him, but I, th- I think he's almost a victim of the own, of the, uh, the high standards that he set for himself from that early day. Um, even during those uh, European seasons, the fact that he burst onto the scene so early, I think people thought that he was older than he was and they could handle more than he was because he was getting more than he was getting the criticism of someone who was 24, 25 years of age. But that's only because he burst onto the scene when he was like 16, 17. They just felt that he'd been around for, for ages. So yeah, Downing undoubtedly needs to be in there. Um, I've gone with Janino as well in here. Um, during the three years in question in the other book, it was only there for a season. Um, obviously because he, he moved on to, uh, to Celtic and it was a real shame that he wasn't part of the European journey because when, when you play so many games during a campaign and with the best ball in the world, as much as he was getting older and he was perhaps a little bit slower after his injury, he could have just absolutely ruined some of those teams that we played, particularly in the group stages of the, uh, of the UEFA Cup. It would have been unbelievable. But in, that, uh, in his final season, when we won the, the Carlin Cup, he had some massive moments and he was he was one of the big personalities and one of the big leaders in that dressing room as well. As much as he was brilliant and his, his quality on the ball was unbelievable and everyone knows how good Janino is at football, but he was a big player. He was a big personality and he was a leader in that dressing room and he was so popular. He was the most humble man. You speak to everyone in that dressing room and he was so liked Janino as well. He, he wasn't a prima donna. He was, he was far from it. If anything, like he, sh- he should have been far cockier for how good he was, but he was, um, he, he was just, it was someone who was um, just a, a delight to kind of have at the club. And he, he did provide some of those moments. And as much as he was only there for a, for a season, I think you've got to say that he was one of the, the early sort of pace setters for what it would take to be a Middlesbrough player in that era, really. Um, and the final one, um, you can have your choice of three, really. Uh, you got you got three stunning strikers during that time where you've got um, Jimmy Floyd, Hasselbank, Mark Viduka and, and Yakubu. I'd probably lean more towards Hasselbank or Viduka just because Hasselbank kind of had the consistency over the two years and the way that he raised standards and he had the hardest shot that uh, <laughs> that you could ever imagine. He was just um, he was just unstoppable to play against Paducah. As much as he had his injuries, he was um, just a class above. He was he was probably my favourite player during that time, just because on his day he was he was untouchable. 
if it wasn't for his injuries, I don't think he would have been anywhere near Middlesbrough. I think he'd have been playing for one of the best clubs in the world. I think he'd have been at like a, a Barcelona or a Real Madrid at that time because he was that good when he was uh, when he was fit. Um, so I've kind of crammed those two into the final position. But I also want to say Macaroni as well, but I'm going to put Macaroni on the, the bench for, uh, for narrative's sake because he was just Middlesbrough super sub. Um, he wasn't... Yeah, I, I'm not going to try and pretend that he had the quality of Hasselbank or Viduka in attack, but he was someone who, off the bench, as we saw in Europe, he just he gave everyone a lift. He was someone who had the quality to put the ball in the back of the net, perhaps wasn't consistent enough to do it over the, the 90 minutes, but what we saw against Basel and, um, and against Stal Bucharest was he gave the players a lift, he gave the fans a lift, and he was... He, he was another player who was hugely popular behind the scenes. He wasn't just someone who kind of like got thrown on and everyone's like, oh, God, Macaroni's on, what's he going to do? The players absolutely loved him. And so when he scored, it, was, it wasn't just delight at the fact that Middlesbrough had progressed from the quarterfinals of the UEFA Cup or from the semifinals. It was the fact that it was Macaroni who had kind of put in so much hard work behind the scenes. Um, he'd had his fair share of hardship. It looked like his Middlesbrough career was over. He probably, most people thought he probably wasn't going to be there in that final season. But in, yeah, in the interest of narrative, I think you've got to have Macaroni as a, a second half substitute for my uh, for my one to 11 because he would come on and score a, score a banger to uh, to make history. What a team that is. And I think when you, when you look at that side there, they're probably, well, other people might disagree, probably aren't too many people from that Riverside era who you'd want to, start adding into that team because it was such a strong period of time for the club, wasn't it? The depth of the squad at that time, I think, was brilliant. Well, Phil, it's been fantastic talking to you about, about this period in time, and it's it's fantastic to think about how successful that period was for the club. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of Borough fans who are, are already halfway through your book or even all the way through or, or about to get it, but there's plenty of places that you can get Phil's book. You can get it in the club shop. You can get it online and Amazon. You can get it from Pitch Publishing. There's all sorts of different places that you can get it. Remember to follow the book at Palmo Book and Phil on Twitter as well. I'll put all the links in the description for the podcast. Well, thank you very much for giving up your time, Phil, and chatting to us here at the Borough Mag Podcast. No problem. My pleasure. I could talk about this all day, so I'm more than happy <laughs> to come on and have a chat to you. Oh, cheers. Thanks very much for that, Phil. But if you've enjoyed this podcast or any of the Borough Mag Podcasts, please do remember to like, rate, share, and review. Let us know how we're doing. We appreciate all the comments about the podcast and we really appreciate everyone that listens. I'm sure you'll have really enjoyed listening to Phil um, and we'll see you next time. Thanks very much, everyone.